First John chapter 5. And we will pick it up right at the beginning of the chapter. We'll finish up this first love letter, which may or may not be the first one, but we're going to finish it up tonight just the same. First John chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 2, verse 7, it says, The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. He was in the beginning. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 says, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Life came to us, and life continues through us, uh, in us, through Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the life. But, you know, when people talk about life, just in general in our world, there is always an underlying conflict. When people philosophize about life or think about life as we know it, when, when we stop long enough in the insanity to ponder life, there's a, a cognitive dissonance. You know, a clash in the conscience, if you will, between what we sense as being true and what we see as also being true. And people have a hard time figuring out this this clash. The Bible puts it this way, Ecclesiastes 3.11, He has set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. We sense that life is eternal. The the most outspoken, non-believing person has a sense that there's more. That, that life goes on. But we're also, all of us, painfully aware of its brevity, of its transience, how short it seems to be. Life is eternal, but people die. That's the conflict. And the Bible doesn't shy away from that conflict. It deals with it head on, because both are true. Life is eternal and people die. And God's not pleased with this situation. It's not the way He wants it to be. Job said in Job chapter 5, verse 7, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upwards. I mean, think about that. You're at a bonfire in the midsummer and someone throws a log on the fire and the sparks go up and they're gone. Well, that's life. It's so quick. It's so short. It's so transient. Job said in Job 14, verse 1, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower he comes forth and he withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Job describes life as sparks, flowers, and shadows. Short-lived. And yet, God did this thing, this marvelous, mysterious, wonderful thing. He set eternity in every one of our hearts. We know there's more. We know there's something beyond this. And when John speaks of life, when he uses the word life throughout this letter, he is talking about life everlasting. He is talking about not that which dies and fades, 
Not that which falls off or, or flies upward, but life eternal. And after testifying about Jesus at the very beginning of the letter, saying the life was manifested. I love how he says that. He doesn't just say life was manifested in Jesus. He says the life was manifested. He was the Son has the life. For John, this is big. That Jesus is the life. And then through this letter, he begins to build this case for eternal life. In Jesus Christ. And, and I love the, the way he writes. And, and as I think we've discovered going through four now out of the five chapters, he is intentional in his writing, in what he says. I read a couple of commentaries several weeks back where the author, and these were ones, when I got this far into the introduction, I closed them and put them away because they're flat wrong. Commentaries that said, well, John's letters are a little random. You know, he just throws out ideas, and you start, and then next thing you know, you're done. But it's, it's all this kind of random theology that he goes from one verse to the next to the next, and is completely disconnected. And I couldn't disagree more. As we have seen, in the first two chapters, he talks about walking in the light. He takes this overarching theme of life and he begins to attack it. And at first he talks about what does it mean to walk in the light as he himself is in the light. And he describes that fully for two chapters. And then in the third and fourth chapters, he moves into living the love. Walking in the light and now living the love. How to live the love of God which is there in the light as he himself is in the light. There is the love of God that fills us the love of Christ Jesus. How do you live that way? What does that look like? And he spends a couple of chapters on that, although he didn't do it in chapters. He just was writing. Finally now, in chapter 5, he rounds back up to the, to the main theme. He encourages us to do what I've been calling loving the life. Walking in the light, living the love, and loving the life. And the outline is clear. I, I made those three up, but the rest, the, the fall... Follow through and the flow of First John is just, it's beautiful. And it's intentional and it's building. And now, as though we've come to the climax or the apex of the letter, John talks about that which is true life. Eternal life. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father Loves the child born of him. Now, you're going to note this, but I'll tell you ahead of time, this is a tidy standalone sermon by itself. Just chapter 5. Preaches so beautifully because John begins with new birth and he ends with life eternal. Starting with being born and ending with a life that never ends, he shows us in this chapter that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, the one sent from God, the Savior... Whoever believes that is begotten of God. That is born again. That's the literal phrase when he says whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is ganao of God, is begotten of God. We're begotten of Him. And whoever then is begotten of God is born for eternity. See, God doesn't beget for brevity or transience. You didn't start following Jesus for a season, you know, while it suits you. No, when you are born again, you are changed forever. You enter into a walk that leads to eternal life. And that's the promise of God is that eternity. It's like Jesus said 
to the Pharisee Nicodemus during that covert encounter on that Jerusalem night. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again, that's ganao, begotten. And then uh, again is actually anothen. It's ganao anothen, which literally means begotten from above. So to be born again is to be begotten from above. It's something only the Holy Spirit can do when a person expresses faith in Jesus. You become suddenly begotten from above. And once begotten from above, you're kingdom worthy. Not by your own value. Not by what you bring to the table. But you're kingdom worthy in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in John 3.16, You know it well, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten told you last week, that's not begotten ganao, it's only begotten monogenes. It's a word that is only used of Jesus in the Bible. Only begotten. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the deal. That's the promise. Now watch this. Verse 1 again. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is begotten of God. And literally, whoever loves the Father loves the begotten of Him. If you are begotten of God, you love the Father, and if that's the case, then you are in love with the begotten of God. Oh, okay, so when I'm born again, I love Jesus. That's not what he's saying. It's true. I mean, you got to love Jesus to be born again. Otherwise, what, why would you do it? But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, if you are begotten of God and you love the Father, you love the begotten of God. That is, you love everyone else who is begotten of God. Hold that thought. And go up to Jerusalem for a moment. You head up to Jerusalem, you ascend the Temple Mount. Get up on top of the Temple Mount, and there in the middle stands the blasphemous Dome of the Rock. Blasphemous? Rick, that's that's a little judgmental, don't you think? Well, I'm just telling it like it is. I'll explain why I would say that. It was built by the uh, Umayyad Caliph Abd al-Malik Ibn Marwan. Ibn. And this guy built it literally in a bid to draw Muslim tourism dollars to Jerusalem. Read the history. He needed to build a caliphate. And he wanted to get the Muslims to come to where he was instead of going over there to Mecca. So he built the Dome of the Rock. And said, this is where Muhammad tied up his horse, right over here. He made his journey to, a, to heaven. Right. He built it to draw attention to this spot in Jerusalem. He finished it in 691. But you need to understand that the blasphemy and the false teaching that is written on the Dome of the Rock even today was already centuries old before Ibn wrote it. Before Abd al-Malik Ibn Marwan wrote it out, had it inscribed this false teaching. It's, it's on the inner and the outer octagonal arcade in various defiant phrases in Arabic lettering. Let me just read to you a few of the phrases that are on the Dome of the Rock in Arabic. And if you read Arabic and you're standing there on the Temple Mount, you'd say, wow, oh, really? Here are some of the phrases. O people of the book, which was Muhammad's way of referring to Jews and Christians. I like that. I'll take that. People of the book, all right. 
He says, O people of the book, exaggerate not your religion. That's written up there. Or, Jesus was only a messenger of God. Believe in God and His messengers and say not three. Cease. That's blasphemy, folks. That's a repudiation of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as described explicitly in the Bible. But that's not all that's up there. It also says, It befitteth not the majesty of God that He should take unto Himself a Son. So the whole Jesus begotten of God, only begotten, monogenes thing, no, no, that's not. That's not true. And it also says up there, God begetteth not, nor was He begotten. Now, in response to that, I say to you, it is no exaggeration to refer to Jesus as God. And the Islamic view of begottenness completely misses the one whom John called, note this, John called him the only begotten of God, the monogenes of God. In fact, John called him more than that. He called him the only begotten God. Not just the only begotten of God, but the monogenes God. In John's terminology, John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Jesus is the only begotten God. Now we cover this. We've talked about this a lot at the bridge. And I don't expect to get a whole lot of argument here. But there's plenty of argument out in the world. Listen, I think this is marvelous. Based on what we read here in verse 1, Jesus is not the only proof that God begets. You are. I am. Because to be born of God is to be begotten of God. You are the begotten of God. He's the only begotten, the monogenes, but you're the ganao. You're the begotten. And the fact that the world is is literally filled with followers of Jesus Christ and has been now for the last 2,000 years is further indication that yes, God does beget new life. The Spirit does a work When we are born again, when we become the begotten, every person who has ever been born again is proof that God is a Father who begets. Verse 1 again is not talking about Jesus when it says whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Well, that's talking about Jesus. But going on, whoever loves the Father loves the born of Him. If your Bible has the word child written in, that's, that's not there. And the born of Him, it's the plural form of begotten. So any and all who are begotten of Him, if you, listen, if you are born again. Can I see a show of hands? How many of you know that you're born again? Begotten of God? Okay. Guess what? You have to love everyone who just raised their hands. (laughs) Russ asked if he could see him again. Show of hands. Yeah, you have to love the begotten. If you are begotten, you do not have a choice. It's part of the deal, gang. They will know you are my disciples by my love. Jesus says we must love the begotten of God. And sometimes the begotten of God really irritate me. None of you. Sometimes the begotten just cross me the wrong way. And I have to confess, sometimes... I know this is hard to believe, but I cross other people as well. 
Sometimes I annoy people, upset people, frustrate people, offend people. <laughs> they have no choice. they got to love me. Because I am born again, and if you are born again, you've got to love me, ha 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 ha, and i got to love you too. That's the way it works. That we are all together the begotten. And being begotten means you love the born again. Our begottenness, our born againness, is the very source of koinonia. Without it, we don't have koinonia. Without being born again, we don't have koinonia because we have a choice. See, see, if, if you're not born again, you don't have to love. And if you don't have to love, koinonia breaks down. Have you been watching the Senate hearings on Kavanaugh this week? Unbelievable. Where's the, where's the common decency in discourse? You know, regardless of where you stand on on, on Kavanaugh being, uh, you know, signed up for the, I don't know, what do you say? Getting on the Supreme Court. And I'm all for it, by the way. Nominated. Nominated. Yeah, well, he's nominated, but but he's going to be confirmed. Confirmed, that's the word I was looking for. Regardless of how you feel about the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, where's the decency in discourse? See, where there's not the requirement to love, that, by the way, is also empowered by the one who loves you more, without that requirement, things break apart. Ultimately, they fall apart. They can't, koinonia can't work. The only way koinonia, that is, that, like, that like-minded fellowship, that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, the only way koinonia works is if we all recognize in our begottenness that we must love the begotten of God. So what happens when you don't? You learn to. What happens if I don't like that person? What happens if that person really has offended me? Go love them. Why should I? Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that we might become begotten of God. That we might become children of God. He went first. He loved the unlovable. And He calls us to the very same thing so our begottenness is the reason we love each other. Feelings have nothing to do with it. It doesn't matter how you feel about another follower of Jesus Christ. That is beside the point. If you're begotten, you love the begotten. Period. And I think that's marvelous. Because you know what it does to us as followers of Jesus? It grows us up. It matures us. When you are in a situation where you are forced, maybe compelled is a nicer word, but literally you have to love another believer that you're having trouble with, guess what happens? You both then have to enter into this, all right, we got to get along. How are we going to do this? By the love of God. By the power of the Holy Spirit in you because you're born again, you enter into a new place. The world doesn't have to do that, folks. The world doesn't have to love. The world can write you off. We don't have that luxury. But again, if you've been born again, you've been enabled to love like God loves. And i got to add this because the way God loves tells us something. It indicates that we love someone whether or not they've earned it. Whether or not they deserve it. 
John sees no two ways about it. If I'm born again, I must love the born again. And it's not lip service, it is action. Look back at verse 20 of chapter 4, which says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and whoever loves the Father therefore loves the born of Him, the begotten of Him. By this verse 2, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. See, this is the life of the Jesus people. This is the requirement, the call. We must love each other. And if we don't, then we learn to love each other because God loves us. And we can't love God and not love each other. Love of God, love of the begotten of God, they are inextricably intertwined. You cannot have one without the other. Can't love God and hate a brother. Can't love a brother and hate God. They're intertwined and you cannot pull them apart. Verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, He repeats, and His commandments are not burdensome. What commandments? Well, we're kind of into the love thing right here, right? Jesus was asked the question by that, by that young lawyer, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he answered, Matthew 22, verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two hang the entire law and the prophets. His commandments are not burdensome. We're not sitting here struggling with the 613 laws of Torah. We have two. Love God and love people. And His commandments are not burdensome. We tend to think they are. Even the love commandments. You may be sitting here and going, okay, I hear what Rick's saying and I see that in the Bible, but I happen to know someone in this fellowship who really doesn't deserve to be here. Or I happen to know someone who's in another church and I'm really glad they are. So I don't have to deal with them. And the Father would say, no, you have to deal with them. That's love. To which we would reply, that's hard. That's tough. You know what? Love is the hardest thing to do until it becomes life. What do you mean? I mean godly love. Loving like God loved you, like like He loves me, reanimates dead relationships. A relationship can be six feet under, in the grave, completely dead, But if one in the relationship begins to love with godly love, something begins to happen. Life returns. Godly love reinvigorates weary souls. And that's your soul and mine. It has nothing to do with whether or not the other person reciprocates. But if I start to love as God loved me, it does something in me. My weariness begins to change into godliness. Godly love revives a hardened heart. It's the only thing that will. Godly agape, and that's really what we're talking about here, 
unconditional love the way God loves restores life on the foundation of Jesus Christ, but it comes with no conditions. That's godly love. No conditions. Which means, again, no matter how the other person responds, without expectation of reciprocation, before there's even a hint or a spark of love in return, you'll love anyway. That's the kind of love that gives life. It offers the opportunity of life for the other person, but I'm telling you, it brings life to you. brings life to me. To love as God loved is life. And then John continues, in this vein, in this same thinking, verse 4, for whatever is born of God, begotten of God, overcomes the world. The world, the cosmos. That is that rebellious, godless, cracked, hardened heart of humanity. If I'm born of God, of God, if I'm begotten of God, and I love like God, it conquers the world. It overcomes what otherwise would overcome me. That is bitterness and spite and anger, vitriol. How do we overcome? Note this, keep it in context, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Keep that in the context of love. When I was a kid, we used to sing a hymn. Some of you may know it. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory, we sang. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. It was written by John Yates. It's one of those kind of old-timey Christian marches. He would sing this song all about faith and marching on in faith because, man, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. But you know what? I went back and looked at the words in that old hymn. And with one line of exception, which says His banner over us is love, the entire rest of the song misses the heart of the phrase, and maybe you have because I know I had, that when John writes, what is the victory that overcomes the world? Our faith. That's the victory that overcomes the world. So many people take the one verse and stop right there and go, yeah, our faith. That's what overcomes the world. That's what conquers the world. Okay, faith is putting my trust in Jesus Christ and that compels me to love victoriously. Because it's faith in Jesus are you with me on this? Because this is so important. It's, I am not trusting in you to return my love. My faith is in Jesus. Therefore, I can love you whether you love me back or not. That overcomes the world. That's the faith that I trust Jesus. And what if that person's mean to me? It's okay, I trust Jesus. What if I pour out love and they stomp all over it? It's okay, I trust Jesus. And that is victorious living. My faith is not in you. Guess what? My faith is not in me either. That is my ability to uphold faith or even uphold love. I'm going to trust in Jesus and do what Jesus does, which is love people. And regardless of how they respond, and regardless of how I might feel, the faith that overcomes a hateful, spiteful world is faith in Jesus Christ, which causes me to love like He did. That's overcoming faith. That's why when the church of Ephesus got their letter from Jesus in Revelation chapter 2, and He commended them on their doctrinal soundness, 
And he said, you're doing great. I know you, you hate the Nicolaitans, these heretics, and just like I do. And you, you've maintained sound doctrine. Good for you, Ephesus. But I have one problem with you. You have forgotten your first love. Therefore, return and repent, he says. Or I'm going to come and take your lampstand away. That is a picture of the Holy Spirit. If your fellowship, Ephesus, does not repent of your lovelessness, even for all your mighty doctrinal soundness, if you don't repent of not being loving, you're going to lose the Spirit of God. Because faith without love is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It is love that proves the faith that overcomes the world. I trust Jesus. In verse 5, he continues, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Why? Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 6, And this is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Not in the water only, but in the water and in the blood. Remember we talked about this Sunday in Hudati, in Hamati. In water, in blood. This is the one who came with both. And recall that the high priest, as we talked about, Leviticus chapter 8, Exodus 29, the high priest was first washed in water and then anointed as a picture of the Holy Spirit. And then, and then the high priest could offer the blood sacrifice. Well, Jesus was baptized, washed in water. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit so that He Himself would be the perfect blood sacrifice. He fulfills all righteousness. He keeps the picture. And continuing on, because we studied this already, in verse 7, For there are three that testify, quickly jump up into your margin, in heaven the Father, and the Word, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that testify on earth, that is, verse 8, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. I include that marginalized verse here because while the Spirit, the water, and the blood testify in agreement, they align with one another, John declares something bigger, something greater, that the Father, the Word, and the Spirit are one. Completely unified. In fact, the word one in the Greek is heis. If you're writing it out in your notes, it would be like H-E-I-S, heis. And the translation of this word is a singular unit of one. Father, Son, and Spirit are one. Jesus used that word many times. But specifically, I'll quote John 10.16. He says, I have other sheep, speaking beyond Israel, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. He's talking about us. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And then in verse 30 of John chapter 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Faith in the one is faith in the three. Trusting in Jesus is trusting in the Father. Trusting in the Father is trusting the Spirit. Trusting the Spirit is trusting Jesus. They are one. 
And based on the demonstration of all three aspects of God in the Holy Bible, there is no competition for first place. We do that. We compete for first place. We also look at the Godhead, the Trinity, and we say, okay, which one is the greatest of the three? Because that's the one I want to make sure I'm worshiping. I don't want to miss Him. You know, so it's the Father, then I'm going to worship the Father. As Jehovah's Witness would say. If it's the Son, I'm going to worship the Son. You know, there's also a Jesus-only movement that denies Father and Spirit. It's just Jesus. Well, no. No, because Father and Spirit are, are the Father, are the Son, and are the Spirit as well. They are God too. Those who, who are so into the Holy Spirit to the exclusion of God the Father and Christ the Son are missing the point. Our God is one and three. And just wait till we get to Revelation chapter 1 and you hear about the seven spirits of God. That's a hoot. Verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, oh, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. And the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. You know what that means? That means every faith in a God or God of any kind in this world that denies Jesus Christ is calling God a liar. There is only one faith that accepts God as true and true to His Word, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. That's Christianity. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God's given concerning His Son, verse 11. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. And here, John steps up to the plate and knocks it out of the park. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There is your assurance. Your assurance is in Jesus. Again, it's not in other Christians. And your assurance is not in yourself. Your assurance is in Jesus Christ to do what He said He would do. To keep His Word and to keep you, as we'll see in just a moment. Our faith is in Him. And if we have faith in Him, we know we have the eternal life. Man, that is the, that is the crown of the Gospel right there. Jesus Christ, who is the life. That's the crown of John's love letters. Verse 13, really, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The Son is the life. The life is the Son. This is the apex of it all. So love the life. Love the life. Love the Son. Love the eternal life that you have stepped into through faith in the Son. Love those who share the life with you. The begotten of God. This is a challenge. Look, I understand the whole love thing is a challenge. I I don't have it down. I was talking to a friend just recently this past week about a situation and and saying, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times, just since I started into pastoral ministry, how many times God has put me on a church staff with someone that was just annoying. I won't tell you who it is right now. 
No, I love our our staff is amazing. But in almost every church situation I've been in, there have you know we we like to call them grace growers, right? Those who come into your life and they teach you how to love because they are so hard to love. And thank the Lord, it's none of us. I'm so thankful that I've never, Daniel, I've never been a grace grower for someone else. I'm sure of it. (laughs) God is so good. He keeps bringing us into these relationships that are hard, that are frustrating, that are upsetting. And He smiles and says, you know what? When you learn to love this person, you're going to be even more like me. And your own faith is going to grow. And your weariness is going to be strengthened. And your joy is going to return when we love the begotten of God as the begotten of God. We love the life. So love the life. Now here at the end of the letter, John, still speaking of the begotten of God who love the life and have the life, he deals with with two more issues. And we got to deal with them. And they're not easy. So I'm going to relate them to you with two final points here. Our hands and God's hands. Our hands and God's hands. First, our hands. Picking up in verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. Our hands. Hands lifted up in prayer. Whatever you ask according to His will, you got it. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we lift up our hands to the Father, because we are needy children, and He's the provider. We don't always know even what we need, but He does. Father does truly know best. So we lift up hands to Him. We, we take it to Him. We trust in Him. Jesus said in Matthew 7.11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? Three times on that Thursday night in the discourse, John 14, 15, and 16. Three times Jesus said, Ask! Anything you ask in My name, you will receive. Ask of the Father. You have not because you ask not. Ask. He invites us to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. He tells us, come and ask of the Father. Now, now forget about the guy who's asking God to bless his lotto numbers. That's not what we're talking about. Not, not talking about those, those temporary requests that sometimes we think are so important. In fact, think back. There are some things you ask God for over the years that probably right now you're really glad He did not give you. There was a girl when I was in high school. Not my wife. I wasn't married then. Please understand. And I, I just, I, she was a Christian girl. I thought she was the one. I was a freshman. You know, I was looking ahead. Oh God! If you'll just put us together... I'm so glad He didn't put me with her. Because I saw her Facebook page and man... No, I'm kidding. No, God knew what I needed. God knew what was right. 
And for all of us, there are things that we've asked for, things that we've wanted, even things that we thought were spiritually good things. We've said, Lord, why not this? Or Lord, why don't you clean up this mess? Or Lord, why don't you fix that? What about the single person who's been praying for a spouse for years and waiting and saying, God, I'm asking. What about the orphaned child waiting for the government of their country to get their act together so they can come home and be part of a family? And they're asking. What about the wife praying over her ailing husband and wondering why God isn't bringing the healing? What about some real serious stuff like that? If God is not answering, does it mean that you know, He's not listening? Or am I not asking right? Am I doing something wrong? Listen, John says very clearly to pray according to His will. He says, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Oh, fine. So all all I get to do is pray for the things that God wants. It's like in a relationship. Well, let's do all the things you want to do. (laughs) Listen, it's deeper than that. The idea is simply being aligned to the will and the purposes of God. It's accepting the fact that God does know what we need and what's best. And this is what His Spirit does, by the way. His Holy Spirit aligns us with His will. So begotten of God, who are born again, born of water and the Spirit, born of the Spirit of God, the Spirit comes into us and begins to mold us after the will and purposes of God, which is why in Luke's Gospel... He quotes Jesus as saying, Luke eleven thirteen. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? I love the shift there. See, in Matthew's Gospel, it's how, how, how much more will the Father give good things to those who ask? But Luke picks up on, no, wait, 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 it was the Spirit that... He'll give you His Spirit. What does that do? Align me with the will of God. And as I'm aligned with the will of God, my prayers begin to fall after His will by His Spirit, His purposes. Now you might say, that sounds nice and holy and spiritual, but this is my life I'm praying about. This is my struggle that I'm in. What about that? Listen, it may be your life that you're worried about or praying about. It's eternal life that He is concerned about. Amen. So He's going to hear our requests and understand where we're coming from. But you know what? His first and foremost with God is your eternal condition. That's it. And anything that will get you there, that's God's greater purpose. So you're the single person, you've been praying for a spouse for years, and it's not happening. Why? God is getting you there. God is getting you there. In the circumstances of your life, by the way, I would add, tailor-made by the Holy Spirit for your life. He's getting you there. To my spouse? No. To heaven. To eternity. He's aligning you with with Him. That might not be comfortable sometimes. But as we've said so many times over the years, God is not so concerned with our temporary condition as He is with our eternal condition. That's the focus of the Father. John Lennon was wrong. 1974, he's saying, whatever gets you through the night, 
No. No. It's whatever gets you to the Father's house. That's what He's about. So if, if you're praying and you feel like He's not hearing my prayers, I'm aligning myself with Him, I'm trying to walk in His will, but He's not hearing me. Yes, He is. And He's doing for you exactly what needs to be done to get you home. And I'll add something to that. He's doing what needs to be done not only to get you home, but to get someone else home. As He works in your life, as you're aligned to the will of God, He's working on other people too. He's got this marvelous plan that we can't even fathom. So Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will receive you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's what matters. That's what He's working on. Now verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. (laughs) What? Verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. I thought all sin led to death. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans 3? The wages of sin is death. The the soul who sins will die. Don't get ahead of me, Spencer. I'm going to kick you right back to Florida. (laughs) Sorry. Did I steal your thunder? No, you're just trying to figure out what's going on here. I understand that. Some things never change. We're going to be in heaven, and Jesus is going to be mid-sentence, and Spencer's going to go, I know, I know, and Jesus is going to be like, do you want to go back to Florida? (laughs) That felt so good. There's a lot of debate over verses 16 and 17, over what it means. There's an entire doctrine in Catholicism about what this verse is actually saying. You know, mortal and venial sin, or venial sin. Those sins that are, you know, going to cause you to die forever, and those sins that, well, they're bad, but if you pray the rosary and say a few Hail Marys, and you'll be okay. That's not what this is talking about. Now listen closely, because the simple contextual understanding is this. We talk all the time about staying in context. I didn't get this until I went right back to the context. What is John talking about in the letter? What's he dealing with? What is he sharing? And John here in verse 16 is talking about two different people. Note again, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. Okay, the first person is the brother. John only uses the word brother to speak of believers. He never applies the word brother to someone who is not a believer in Jesus. So we're talking about a believer who sins. We're also talking about a believer who sins overtly. We're not talking about sins of of the mind. We're not talking about assuming the filthy thoughts that all you are thinking right now. You know, we're not that's not what we're talking about here. But overt sin, because he says if anyone sees his brother committing a sin. 
So you see a brother or sister in Christ, and they do something wrong, something sinful. What do you do in that situation? Well, first of all, understand if it's a brother or believer, it's a sin not leading to death. The soul who sins will die, but (laughs) begotten of God, you've been forgiven of your sin. So it's not a sin leading to death. Stay with me on this. The sin is observable. And in this case, what John is encouraging as he's talking about loving the begotten of God is he's saying if you see a brother or you see a sister commit a sin, the first thing you do is not judge or condemn. The first thing you do is pray for them. First place you go, you go to the Father. And if you follow the prescription of Jesus in Matthew 18, then you go to the brother or sister and you present to them what you've seen going on to restore to help them see that error. To, to bring them to confession. Oh, you bust them? Yeah, lovingly. It's a loving bust. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. And I love the way Paul writes this. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass. That means they don't, they don't confess it. They're caught. You saw them do it. What do you do? You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so you too will not be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Which is what? Love each other. And I love John saying first here, first thing you do if you see a brother committing a sin, pray for him. I mean, even before you go to him, drop your knees and pray. Lord, so-and-so, I I bring before You and I pray for their restoration. I pray that You give me the words to share with them, loving words, compassionate words, to bring them back to Your fold so they can see what happened and they can repent and You can make this right. Oh Lord, pray for the person because You'll love them. And then go to them and seek to restore them. John said in 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that is the sin not leading to death. Because as He said in 1 John 2 verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So our hands, our hands are lifted up in prayer to the Father to align us to His will and His purposes, our hands are lifted up in prayer to the Father for one another. And especially if we see a brother or sister sinning, we pray for them. That's the work of our hands. But there are those who are to be given over into God's hands. There are those who we are, brace yourselves, not to pray for. The one who commits sin leading to death. Let's get a very clear definition of death here in these couple of verses. We are not talking about physical death. We are talk- Just as he's talking in this whole section about eternal life, he's talking about eternal death. He's talking about spiritual death. And what is the one sin that leads to eternal spiritual death? What's the sin? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's the one. Mark 3.29, Jesus said, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Understand, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to say, Jesus is not God 
and I reject Him outright. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. To say God is less than He is, to diminish God. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says very seriously in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 7, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of, he says, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day. Spiritual death. Eternal destruction. Lake of fire. Revelation 20. Eternal condemnation. All of these come down to one thing unforgivable, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, how do I know that's what he's talking about when he talks about the sin leading to death? And even goes so far as to say, there's a sin leading to death, and I do not say that he should make requests for this. That you don't pray for this situation. Why would you say that, John? What's behind the entire letter? Remember, we've talked about what was going on, and it's inherent in this letter and in the next two, the love letters of John. There's heresy afoot. There are those John describes as they went out from us but were not of us. Chapter 2, verse 19. He's called them out already, those, those many antichrists. And sometimes you have to stop praying for a person. Now please hear me on this. You don't stop praying for someone because you give up on them. But sometimes, and we have precedent for this, you stop praying for someone to leave them in the hands of God because He's the only one who can deal with them. What's the precedent? God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7 verse 16, As for you, do not pray for this people. Do not lift up cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I do not hear you. That is an amazing statement God makes to the prophet Jeremiah when Israel has turned their back on God is in abject rebellion. Babylon is bearing down and is going to destroy the holy city Jerusalem. And God says, Jeremiah, don't you dare pray for the people. Why not? (laughs) I think because the compassion of God is so big that if Jeremiah had, he might have relented. And it was not good for Israel at the time that God should relent. They needed to go through the captivity. It needed to happen. So God tells Jeremiah, don't pray for the people. He repeats that in Jeremiah 11.14 and in Jeremiah 14.11. So three times God tells the prophet, don't pray for the people. Don't pray for the Antichrist. John is saying there are those now he actually John's not even saying don't pray for them he's saying I'm not saying that you should pray for them he's saying your prayer absolutely should be for a brother or a sister who have sinned but if you're talking about someone who's living in abject rebellion you're released from that prayer that's serious business so how do I know how do I know when to stop praying for someone. How, how do I? How can I discern that now is the time? Is it when I label them antichrist? How do I know when? I would suggest the following, very simply. 
err on the side of prayer. Err on the side of prayer. If you're not sure, you keep praying. I've had this conversation so many times. Should I pray for my daughter who's gone off the deep end? Should I keep praying for my son though he is completely in rebellion? Do I keep? Yes. Yes. You never stop praying. You pray with every last breath. Unless God tells you otherwise. And I leave that between you and the Lord. But if God speaks clearly to you as He did to Jeremiah, stop praying for this person. Understand, even then, it doesn't mean they're lost. This is what's remarkable. There are situations where God deals with a person and doesn't need our prayers messing it up. I know that sounds weird because it flies in the face of everything we're taught in the church. So pray all the time. Yes, unless the Lord says stop. Because when He says stop, He's doing something. We'll get into this in Revelation, but you know what's fascinating to me? There is a moment in Revelation chapter 8 where we're told there is silence in heaven for half an hour. We're going to talk about why. But part of that, if there was silence in heaven, that means for a half an hour in a time yet to come here, in a time about midway through the tribulation period in heaven, all noise will cease. You know what that means? It means all prayer stops for a moment. God's about to do something. And sometimes He says, stop praying. But until the Lord very clearly says to you, stop praying, my prescription is, pray on. Pray on. You keep praying. And especially, especially for your brothers and sisters in Christ. There are two kinds of prayer. One is for the brethren. And that is a prayer of restoration. Always a prayer of restoration for brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's a prayer for the non-believer. And it is a prayer for salvation. When you pray for children, brothers, sisters, family members, friends who don't believe in Jesus Christ, don't pray for a blessed life. Don't pray everything works out well for them. Don't pray they they get that job or get that promotion or get that spouse. No, you pray salvation. That God does whatever it takes to get them to the Father's house. That's the prayer for the lost. Prayer for the saved. Oh, restore us and align us to the will of God in Christ Jesus. Now, in case you feel a little personally rattled about this idea of of the sin leading to death, the idea that there's an eternal damnation and eternal destruction, that there is a spiritual death, and you're like, yeah, what is that? What about us? I mean, are, are we in any fear of that? Listen, the same hands that judge have nail prints. And those nail prints are there for you and for me. And we trusted in Jesus. And when we did, the nail-scarred hands are now lifted up in prayer. Jesus is interceding constantly for you in heaven. That to me is the greatest prayer that goes on anywhere. What is He saying? Susie, what is He praying for you? I have no idea. God, what's He saying about it? He is interceding for us constantly. Some of those things, I don't want to know what He's praying. But He is the great intercessor. He is the one who's praying. Well, verse 18. 
John goes on and says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. We do? Yes, we do. Sins is in the present active indicative in the Greek. It literally is no one who is born of God continually sins. That is, gets into the rut of sin. It just goes and keeps going. You know, come what may, this is my lifestyle. This is who I am. This is what I do. No one who's born of God continually sins. Every one of us, and you know this, begotten ones, if you find yourself returning to an old sin, it's like running into a brick wall. And your conscience aches. Your heart breaks. If you're begotten of God, you're not going to keep going down that same road over and over and over. And if you are, you got to wonder, are you? Are you born again? Do you love Jesus Christ? Well, what do I do if I if I if I have a, a rut sin, you know, if I'm in this sin struggle and I keep going back to it. I don't want to be continuing in it, but I'm continuing in it, and John says, No one who's born of God continues to sin, and I don't want to continue to sin. What do I do? Talk to God about it. Walk in the light with Jesus about it. Uncover the sin. Don't uncover someone else's. You uncover your own before the Lord. Bring Him into the mess. He loves to work in those things and to restore and to forgive. But we know that no one who is begotten of God continually sins. But He who was born of God, that is He, that is Jesus who was begotten of God, keeps Him and the evil one does not touch Him. MC Hammer was right. Can't touch this. If Jesus has you, can't touch this. And I told you this last Wednesday night. We've talked about this. John is so clear. We have got to stop being victims of sin. Well, I just can't help myself. No, you can. How? Jesus keeps you. He's got you. There's your power to overcome sin. It's in Jesus Christ. He keeps you. The word keep there, and by the way, it's a favorite word of Jude, and we're going to get to Jude's letter week from Sunday. Actually, week from tonight, I think. No, no, week from Sunday. Jude uses this word over and over. It's the word keep. He who was born of God keeps him. Tereo. It means to guard. It means to hold fast. Jesus said this. Listen, begotten ones. John 10.27 My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He keeps us. He says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Well, am I in the Father's hand or am I in Jesus' hand? Yes! And He keeps you. The begotten of God, the only begotten, keeps the begotten. What do I do? You just keep faith in Jesus. You keep trusting Jesus. You bring Jesus into every life situation and trust Him to see you through. Verse 19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world, the whole cosmos, lies in the power of the evil one. And it does. I mean, look around. You wonder what's going on. You ever heard the phrase, man, the world's going to hell in a handbasket? Well, that's because it's in the power of the evil one. 
That's why we see what we see happening in our culture and in our world. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. Skip back up to verse 12 of chapter 5. He who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. That's the deal. And note the powerful end of verse 20. This is the true God and eternal life. And John unequivocally calls Jesus true God and eternal life. And by the way, that is absolutely clear in the the Greek. He ends referring to Jesus. We are in Him who is true, in His Son, in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And the last subject mentioned is the focus of the next sentence. This, that is Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. And if you want more proof that He's talking about Jesus, He's already called Jesus the life. So here He calls Jesus true God and eternal life. And I think... That is a great way to end the letter. But he doesn't. John is a good preacher. He doesn't end when he should. Kind of like Paul, like so many others. He he has to add one more thing. Verse 21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. What? I mean, it's great. It's a good sentiment, John, and I agree with it. Thank you for reminding us to guard ourselves from idols. But for crying out loud, you had the home run final verse in verse 20. And then you have to tap that on. Put it somewhere else in the letter, man. What's John doing here? I told you, and this is just a supposition. I told you when we began to study these three love letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, all penned by John from the Holy Spirit, that they probably didn't come in the order 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. You know, he didn't write 1st John on the envelope and send it out, 2nd John, 3rd, you know. Probably did not even come in this order, and John certainly didn't call them 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And what's very interesting, and I think you'll see this on Sunday and next Wednesday, but when we look at 2 John, and then when we look at what we call 3 John, these two read like they probably were sent out first. Like 1 John is actually 3 John. Three letters all written right around the same time. At the end of the first century, uh, sometime in the early 90s A.D., one letter, 3 John, as we call it, written to Gaius. So written to a person. Um, the second letter, what we call Second John, written to a parish. That is the chosen lady and her children, so a church fellowship. And then what we call First John is written to a people. That is the church at large, both then and now and across 2,000 years. This is a sermon. This is a letter for the entire church. And if you read Second and Third John, you get the sense that he's first he's writing to Gaius, this this person, and he's thinking about, it, and he's got some concerns, and he kind of shoots this letter off because some word has gotten back to John of an issue of some people who are bringing some heretical teaching, and he's like, Gaius, heads up. And then he thinks, I got, I got to let the whole fellowship know about this. The chosen lady, heads up. There's a problem, and, and I can't say all that I want to say right now. I want to really say some of this in person. Shoots off the letter. And then he sits down and goes, No, it's too important. I've got to write this out. And he writes 1 John. 
Now again, we're dealing a little bit with surmise here, but if you read the three letters, they really come off like 2nd and 3rd John probably went out first and then he sat down and worked out 1st John and sent it out to all the churches. Furthermore, the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation are most likely both written before these three letters. What are you saying? 1 John is a full-scale expression of what John wanted to write in 2nd and 3rd John. And if this is so, as I'm laying this out, and it's very likely this is the case, then what happened is John wrote the Gospel of John sometime in the 80s. Early 90s, he had the Revelation. Then afterward, back in Ephesus, released from the island of Patmos. He's now back in Ephesus. He's stationed there and he sends out 2 John, 3 John, and finally 1 John. What does that mean? It means 1 John may very well be the last letter of the Bible. Which means 1 John chapter 5, verse 21 is the last verse of the Bible. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. What is the first verse of the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. And with that, the Spirit closes the book. Fascinating. Wherever it all falls, anything or anyone is an idol or an antichrist. Anyone who is not Jesus Christ. That He is our focus. From beginning to end, we worship one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are in Him through Jesus who is true God and eternal life. And as John writes this even to us tonight, I believe he would say, may nothing and no one get in the way of true God and eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for this letter of John. Thank You, Lord, that You have such great love for us, such great compassion for us, such depth of understanding that You had these letters sent off. And we do take them as love letters, letters from a loving spirit. And I pray, Lord, that You will continue to work in us and through us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and not to become idolatrous about any other thing. May we worship You and You alone. And we continue to do that right now, Father. Lord, as we come to Your table, as we share in communion together, we're reminded of the One who came not in water only, but in water and in blood and by Your Spirit. And it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all transgression and gives us the eternal life that we've been talking about. Thank You so much, Father. We love You and we worship You in Jesus' name. Amen.